Welcome to Out of Rich Darkness. I'm Camille Savage-Kroll. And I'm Elena Chia. We're both professors at the University of Music in Freiburg, Germany. In this podcast, we reimagine the ways in which we learn and make music and explore how it can be part of a holistic, healthy way of being in the world. For our second season, we've brought in some help in the form of experts from different fields, ranging from environmental activism to visual arts, who can help us see where our blind spots might be and inspire us to dream bigger. This week's episode is a continuation of last week's conversation between Camille Savage-Kroll and Jason Alexander-Holmes. Last week, Jason left off talking about Susan Conkling, his beloved teacher from the Eastman School of Music, where Camille also studied. They were talking about inclusion, diversity, and how one teacher can make an enormous difference in one person's life. Jason mentions how Susan Conkling was able to connect him to people who gave him a sense of community and provided amazing opportunities for him in the music world. And she did that at a really deep level. It was not... It was not an all a surface thing. I feel like no. a lot of times when I go to conferences, <clears throat> I'll get introduced to people, and um, I get told about you know what they what they do, and um, and I'm just you know listening to you. I'm just remembering also that Susan somehow I don't even remember how we had these conversations or, or when, but she knew a lot about me. She knew. She did. You're right. She knew a lot about my family and about how I grew up. And I don't even specifically remember her asking me, but she would bring these things up then in conversation where I realized, oh, she knows things about me that I don't tell people normally. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, I think that's also something um, when we talk about connecting people, it's not just about, about people's credentials or what they do. It's about really connecting people at a deeper level. Um, yeah. and, and you talked about family values and, and the places where people come from. And I think that's a big part of it that gets probably ignored a lot more than it should. I agree. I mean, it takes it, it takes a certain humility, really, yeah. to, to look at that and, and allow your values to mesh with someone else's values. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why it gets ignored, right? Because mm-hmm. we're so, um, you know, I posted the other day about a, an experience I had with um, uh, an honor choir preparation process. And um, one thing that I came away from that with was, wow, like what kind of world have we created in the choral or music education world where we're also afraid of judgment, right? That we kind of limit our own uh our own growth and if we're limiting our own growth god knows we're limiting our students growth right um and it's such a sensitive thing especially at this moment right where we are so engaged in taking a stand against injustice um and i think we have to do that carefully like we we have to bring that same um desire to understand where folks are coming from uh, because I'll tell you, my first reaction with this honor choir situation was, you know, anger and offense. And, you know, I can't believe that this is the reaction. Uh, Could you share a little bit, a little bit yeah, of your experience? I don't know how much you can go into detail. But. Sure, sure. Basically, I had submitted a program and um, 
the 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 program of five pieces included one one piece in Arabic, and one piece in Haitian Creole, uh, and I think there was um, what I now recognize as fear about these two um, not as commonly sung languages in our kind of choral canon, um, and I understand it. I mean, you know, the, the the Arabic piece that I submitted, I mean, the title has lots and lots and lots of syllables. So I get like <laughs> looking at it and saying, oh, wow, how I can't say the title. How am I going to teach this to my students? Um, and, you know, there was a suggestion that I choose something in uh, perhaps a romance language. Um, and I just thought, wow, that's an incredibly racist thing to say. Yeah. Whether or not the person even realized that it was a racist thing, but, um, you know, but then further, I mean, going back to this idea of compassion, like, and going back to our experiences at conservatories, right? How often do we get to even explore languages outside of French and Italian and German and English? Uh, and maybe sometimes Russian if you're really adventurous, right? (laughs) So, um, and then that kind of, what I what I realized was that folks were really nervous about sending their children to this honor choir festival unprepared and having someone, maybe even me, be judgmental about the fact that these teachers didn't prepare their their children. And I had to say to the person organizing it, you know, I'm I'm not that type of person, and I understand that that type of person exists and is out there. I said, if we can't do one of the songs because they're not prepared, we'll cut it and move on, <laughs> you know? And we yeah. can make that decision early in the process, and no one needs to feel like they didn't accomplish something um, because they they tried to do something. And, of course, now is a, a wild time to be a teacher, right? Because none of us know how our classrooms will look in the fall. Yes. Uh, especially if you're teaching uh, in choral settings, like we yeah. just have no clue what is safe to do. So, you know, having compassion for that heightened sense of uh, kind of insecurity. Um, but with that, we can't excuse racist notions, right? You know, you can be compassionate and call out the fact that this is racist. It's racist yeah. to refer to Haitian Creole as some African question mark language. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hurtful. Wow. I mean, it's hurtful to, yeah. uh, when you think about all the contributions uh, from the African diaspora to be kind of boiled down to someone yeah. who's just unfamiliar, say some African. And again, it's not completely their fault. I mean, Google is very accessible <laughs> and easy yeah. to use, but I think that's how all of us were, almost all of us who are teaching now were taught, right? There are these languages that we will name, and then there are these African languages. And we know, if we're lucky, we might know that, you know, Africa is a big old continent (laughs) with lots and lots of linguistic diversity, but none of us were taught to value the African continent enough to be able to say this was this language. And besides, Haitian Creole... (laughs) is Haitian Creole and is often grouped with Romance languages, right? This is also but true, yes, as the exactly. daughter of linguists. Yes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. So um, it just kind of revealed to me the, the gaps um, and the culture that we've created. Um, yeah. I think, if I'm being sympathetic, I think we've created that gap or that, that culture in pursuit of 
excellence, whatever right. that is. Oh yeah, um, Ooh, that's another yeah. thing that needs packing. But yeah, it does so much unpacking, right? Yeah, because um, I think we what we often mean is is a very narrow definition, right, of what can be excellent, um, and it also engenders a fear of of trying something that may not reach our standard of yeah. excellence, right? So. Right. Um, so that's that situation. Sorry. Yeah. And, and I mean, what you are talking about um, is, I think, one of the main things that is holding us back in, in the music world. Um, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about institutions of higher learning, where this is definitely the case, or even um, in, in settings, in choral settings, in schools, um, mm -hmm. is a fear of the unknown. And yeah. It, you know, it. it I, I love what, what you said a moment ago that we have to have compassion for insecurities. Yeah. Um, and that's something that that I also need to remember in all of my um, all of my euphoria to move things <laughs> forward because I feel like this is a, a moment and a, and a time we have a chance here to have a conversation that was not possible even just a few months ago. Yeah. We have to remember we are all one, and if we're approaching these problems from a place of anger, which I feel moving up in me very often. Um, yeah. I feel the anger, but if I, if I approach solving these problems, not that we can solve them, but we can move the conversation forward from a place of anger, I don't have that compassion for insecurities. Yeah. And I, I, I don't, I don't feel the fear that is really what is at the root. A lot of these, of a lot of these problems, fear of the unknown fear of, um, of not looking like the kind of expert that we're expected to be. Yep. Um, fear of, of experimentation, which if we could, man, this is one of the, I think one of the core things, if we could somehow at least name those fears, we could, we could look them in the eye and, and start to, to realize what is really going on here and, and, and then start to think about, well, do we want to let these fears hold us back? Or do we want to allow ourselves to expand and, um, and right. change and grow? Yeah, I think that's so important. At the Chorus America conference, there was a session, I'm forgetting the title of the session, um, but one of the presenters, Linnell Joy Jenkins, um, it was about intentional programming, right? Mm -hmm. and, oh, um, yeah. and what she said was, and Linnell is a black woman um, who, is a fabulous teacher and a fabulous uh, musician uh, and just a fabulous leader of singers, right? A fabulous conductor. She, she, she says, you know, one of the things that she's recently had to do is say, what am I afraid of? You know, when it comes to performing um, music that I didn't learn, you know, what am I afraid of? And with that, where are my students going to see themselves in my programming? Right. So like if you can like marry those two questions, um, mm -hmm. you can kind of move forward because usually yeah, when absolutely. I ask myself what, I, right. When I ask myself what I'm afraid of, the answer is something like very stupid. <laughs> usually know? it is, but because you know? we don't even name it, it we just, don't. it just hovers it's... over us and is this invisible monster that holds us back. Yeah, exactly. And we rationalize the fear to like, blow up this monster to this like epic size yeah. that we feel like we can't face it but like when we actually look for it and again you know i'll go back to google it's mm. so easy to google 
an expert. Yes. In this day of doing everything via Zoom, it's even yeah. so easy to bring in an expert. I will That's make right. a plug for paying people, you know, that Absolutely. we bring in, yeah. you know. But the other piece is that the reality of the situation is that we always have money to pay folks that we bring in. Yeah. So what can we do yeah. to, to, to properly appreciate the, the, the cultures that we know we need to honor, but yeah. that for some reason we're not? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think a big part of moving, moving forward is going to be learning how we can honor cultures that are not our own. Yeah, I think that is that is really one of the also one of the main main things. Um, I'm wondering if I can kind of ask you a question that is along the same lines. But um, I saw just today, actually, I saw that the Kennedy Center in D.C. is um, is starting a a program um that is well they explained it like this they said if racism is systematic if it is um institutionalized um we need systems systems that are anti-racist so it's not enough to just talk about these things and it's not enough to um to have well-intentioned people doing their best we need systems to change we need systems that actually are anti-racist and they said we need to create systems that sustain um, an equitable future and that really um, that really just confirmed to me how important it is to to be operating at multiple levels so the one is is having the conversation the heart to hearts seeing the insecurities having compassion the other level is making systemic change um, yeah. that will help us to to actually <clears throat> change the future and i'm wondering do you have any just spontaneously any ideas how what would be important systemically to change in the world of music Maybe if you have any ideas also for the world of music, higher learning, music conservatories, what sort of systemic changes do you think would be necessary? Yeah, I, I think about, you know, all oppression really as kind of this um, system of privileges, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've often thought about, especially in like American politics, why does racism keep coming up? And you know, very, maybe cynically, I don't know, but I say because it works, right? When you can make one group the in-group and another group the out-group, everyone wants to be part of the in-group, so that group gets more votes, right? You know, even if it's through the Electoral College, we won't go into that. Anyway, but, <laughs> um, but it, you know, it does work to, to maintain privilege and to maintain power. So how can we create systems that privilege different things right yeah. you know what would an actual meritocracy look like mm -hmm. you know in higher ed right. um what what would it look like if we you know i often think about this in terms of studying voice right um i think so many of us when we say study voice if we're really honest we mean study opera yeah. right and maybe again, if we're like wild and adventurous, study art song, you know. So, um, and again, what does that even mean? Who's art <laughs> and whose songs, right? Yes. But I think these generalized titles of things. Yeah. There's um, choir and there's jazz choir. The other exactly, yep. exactly. I think, I think so much of that 
perpetuates who is privileged, right? Because it's very literally deciding who's in the in-group and who is in the other group, like you just said. Um, so so that's part. On a very, like, um, kind of practical level, it's how can we think about musicianship really, really broadly, right? You know, we're okay to allow someone into the conservatory who has, like, this golden voice but doesn't know anything about theory, right? Right. Could we open that up even more to say we can let someone into the conservatory who is a monster improviser? Yes. And has no clue about About something, you know? Exactly. And, you know, I feel like that would be a system where we're changing who's privileged, right? Um, I was listening to a podcast that was kind of exploring James Baldwin's works. uh, And they were talking about, you know, by the end of his life and career, he was starting to say, we have to create systems um, where the, the things that, that we're used to being privileged, whiteness, maleness, um, wealth, are not privileged anymore. They don't get you anything. Yeah. Um, yes. And if and if they don't get you anything, then they kind of lose their power. Yes. Of course, that's easier said than done because that's terrifying <laughs> to some people. Yeah. yeah. But I think we can look towards um, examples, especially like if we're thinking about feminism. You know, in countries where men's roles and women's roles or gender roles are kind of treated more equally right where they're really actually working towards equal pay or equal health care then the outcomes are better for everyone like not just women right they're also better for men um and i think i think the same is true in terms of racialized power within our world of music and we are i mean we kind of have an example of it if we think about american popular music you know Almost all American popular music is black. Yeah, <laughs> like it had its almost roots. Almost all. Yep. You know, it had its roots in blackness. Um, and I only say almost because I haven't done the research, but I'm all, I mean, I could almost even say all. Yeah. <laughs> popular music if you trace is. back to where it came from. Absolutely. Exactly. So there was a certain valuing of black musical contributions. Yeah. Unfortunately, it didn't come with valuing black people, but there was a valuing of these musical contributions. And look what it's done. I mean, mm-hmm. we've shown that when we value what people put into the world, it can take over the world. I mean, mm-hmm. there's not a country in the world that yeah. doesn't have American pop as part of yeah. its musical landscape. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of uh, people are often like bemoaning the death of classical music. And it's like, well, of course it's going to die because like we're undernourishing it <laughs> with, um, by keeping it for a certain few and keeping it f- exactly by by containing it, by wanting to preserve it. And it even yeah. goes back to the yeah. notion of a conservatory, right? Absolutely. I mean, it was almost like they were destined to die because mm-hmm. their their goal was to conserve uh, and preserve the the work of a certain few right yeah. and yeah. for make it for a certain few and that that's just not sustainable so it's not it really isn't well i love the example that you just gave about how we for instance could look at who is applying to our institutions of higher learning in a different way because right now we set standards mm-hmm. that have to be met and that has absolutely nothing 
individual about it. So right. I, I love your idea right now of, of looking at people as people. Maybe it would mean very, in a very concrete way, completely changing our audition system and taking away all the requirements for certain repertoire and saying, come, you have 15 minutes, present to us who you are as a musician. And maybe that would be something like that would be a step in, in the right direction. I think it would be. I mean, especially in the choral field, we often bemoan the fact that there's so many people who graduate who don't have keyboard chops or who can't, you know, accompany one, four or five songs. And I get that. It's a it's a basic skill. How much how much richer would our kind of landscape of music education be if we brought in people who have those skills who can share you know yeah. and we can learn from each other yeah. uh instead of saying if you don't have if you have these skills but not those skills we think you're cute but no um so you know it's yeah. like <laughs> swipe left right? so oh, we do so um, much of that so we do. much of it to our own detriment exactly exactly yeah. it's i find it really interesting the things that we i mean the answers are right there and clearly the mm -hmm. only thing preventing us from moving forward with the available answers are systemic racism, systemic sexism, you know, there, yeah. we could go on and on ableism, yeah. blah, blah, blah. We could, we could keep it, keep it going with right. all the ways that we block ourselves from success. I feel very lucky to have, um, to have come into Eastman with some of those skills, right. Mm. To be able to, um, to, to have functional piano skills yeah. because of the work that I did as a church musician mm -hmm. in my youth, right? right? I know I'm not the only one. You know, when I taught in the city of Rochester at School of the Arts, mm -hmm. that was another time when, um, you know, there were, there were kids who were church musicians who were so happy to have someone who understood, like, the culture of black church in order to understand what musicianship skills are required to fit into that culture um and again i think i think our our institutions could would stand to um to to be improved by appreciating yeah. that fact yeah. you know a lot of folks are talking about how music education and ethnomusicology have to kind of become one <laughs> now because we all have to be considered concerned with music and culture and um you know what what skills are necessary to to make it as a right. musician really so right yeah absolutely one last question um sure if if i may um the tiniest question <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm wondering um to close this conversation which i also just could keep going with you because i, I feel like there's so many things that that we could talk about and i've just yes. enjoyed this so much but um I'm wondering if you could tell me, based on on your experience and what you're doing today, um, maybe it's changed from the time when you were when you were young, but what is music to you? Like I said, it's a tiny question. I'm sorry. It is. Wow. No. <laughs> um, well, I I go back. I have to go back to the sharing thing. Yeah. It's always been that. Um, you know, it's always been about sharing what is kind of 
in me. I almost said in my heart, and then I almost said in my spirit, and then I almost said in my body. I mean, it's all three of those things, right? Uh, what's in my mind? Sharing so sharing what's in me um, with the world, sharing it with my students, um, sharing it with audiences. Um, yeah, that's that's what it is to me. And I think when I think of it that way, I am. It never fails that I'm in awe at the power that that music holds, right? Mm -hmm. And when I think of it that way, it encourages me to be open. Yeah, you know, to music sharing is I almost do. never a one-way street. It, it exactly always goes both ways. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that openness that um, allows me to receive music. Sometimes, oh, sorry. Sometimes music that I like. Sometimes music that I don't like. Um, sometimes music that I'm familiar with and uh, music that I'm not familiar with. Um, but at least if I'm if I'm thinking about it in that sense, then it's um, then I'm open to it, and I can find value and, and beauty in it. Mm -hmm. Thank yeah. you so much. That's thank a you. Great, great way to to close this conversation. This is so much fun. Thank you so much for asking me. It's always good to, to just get together and chat about all the things. It was a privilege, really. Thank you for listening to Out of Rich Darkness. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take the time to leave us a review so that more people can find us. You can help us grow our community of positive change by engaging with us. What's on your mind? Who should we talk to next? We'd love to hear from you on social media.